Welcome to our podcast here at Encounter Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We pray that as you listen to this message, you will not only be challenged, but changed. Our desire is to be a place where life starts, love happens, and purpose is revealed. If you're in our area, join us on Sunday mornings at 9 or 11 a.m. and every first Wednesday at 6.45 p.m. For more information about our church, you can visit us at EncounterChurch.today or follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Periscope. Just search eChurchBR. We invite you now to open your hearts to receive what God has for you. Here's today's message. Good morning. Wow. You love our church? I love our church. Wow. I am pumped to use uh, the phrase from Avery Hall from the baptisms on Wednesday night. That was a great night on Wednesday. Thanks to all of you that came uh, to witness uh, that fantastic evening on Wednesday. Uh, that was a great time indeed. I'm so excited to be here with you this morning, as I always am honored and privileged. Uh, now, you know, I, I, I do, every now and again, I can overrun sometimes just by a minute or two. Um, so today, uh, I am really conscious of that fact, um, for no other reason than the fact that Pastor Philip is actually in the house this morning. Uh, rumor has it, he's got a taser gun, uh, and if I go over time, he's going to be... Uh, so I don't want you to witness me being a blubbering wreck on the stage, so we're going to dive right in, straight into the, uh, to the Word. Uh, let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we love you, and we thank you for who it is that you are. We thank you for this wonderful house. We thank you for our senior pastor and his family, and we pray blessings upon him. Him. We pray uh, and thank you, Lord God, that he's had a week of refreshing. We pray, pray as I said, over him and his family. And I thank you, Lord, for the honor and the privilege that I have today to share your word. As always, I'm going to ask you, please use me. And Lord, I just pray that every word from my mouth will be yours and not mine. I pray that there would be open minds and open hearts here this morning. And that every person in this place would be touched by your word today and would leave here changed forever. We give you praise and we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Okay, well, normally speaking, we uh, have a message for you, and we always aim uh, to try and reach as many people as we can with the content of the message. Uh, Today's message is not like that. This message is not for everybody. This message is not for everybody. If you are perfect and flawless, this message is not for you. Uh, Feel free to leave. Okay, let's carry on then. Um, I've got the privilege, as I say today, to continue on uh, with our series of the book of Galatians. And I, I, and I love the fact that our pastor is bold enough that he will once a year pick out a book of the Bible and we will break it down practically verse by verse. Not all pastors are going to do that. Not all senior pastors are going to do that. Not all churches will do that. Most, uh, well, I won't say most. There are a lot of churches out there that will be delivering you messages that will have you feeling good. You know, you come to church on a Sunday morning to get your fix and your boost uh, of your ego, of your feelings, and you leave excited. Uh, But that's not really our purpose here. Yes, it's great if you leave excited. Yes, it's great if you leave motivated. Yes, it's great if you leave encouraged. But if you don't leave here having been taught the truth of the word, then frankly, we are not doing our job. And our job is, as I keep saying, every time I get the mic lately, I've been saying, our job is to equip you. It's to equip you to go and do what it is that you are called to do. Our calling is to equip you so that you can go and do your calling. And when Pastor Philip told me a couple of months ago that we were going to be doing uh, the series on Galatians and that he wanted me to uh, preach one of the messages, I've got to be honest with you, I did geek out a little bit on the inside. Love Paul. As Christy was saying, you know, I, I just love Paul. He's one of my absolute favorites from the Bible. Uh, and that's always been the case, really, since I was very first saved and I, and I read the Bible through for the first time. When I was reading about Paul, uh, his salvation was just such a massive, massive impact uh, story to me. If you don't know the story of Paul, then I would, I would recommend that you read all about him. But he was basically literally knocked off a horse on his way to Damascus uh, by Jesus Christ and was completely transformed from the inside out. And as Christy alluded to earlier, he went from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum. He was persecuting Christians, killing Christians, torturing Christians, standing by uh, and, and watching as people were stuck 
stoned. I mean, he was that end of the scale. And then after his salvation experience, he went to the other end of the scale. He was given uh, apostolic authority. He was just basically, he has, there is nobody like him in the Bible as regards his contribution to the books of the Bible and the teaching of the Bible. Here's the thing, though. It's oftentimes too easy to think about the people in the Bible. We, you know, we all have our favorites. Those of us that read the Bible, we all have our favorite uh, people, characters, for want of a, a better phrase. And it's easy for us to have them in our minds and see them in the same way that we would see any other character in any other book. We can look at the stories of Paul through the book of Acts. We can see the miracles that God performed through him. We can see the close shaves with death that he survived, the shipwrecks, the snake bites, prison escapes with his sidekick Silas. We can see all of these things. We can see his life as an action movie that would totally have us captivated. And it has that storyline, you know, bad guy turns good guy. The only thing missing is he gets the woman at the end. Right? But he didn't want the woman at the end. That's another story whatsoever. But he basically, as I said, he is a, such a powerful, powerful character. But we can't look at people in the Bible. We can't look at Paul as that. And I really want to stress that and hit that home to you this morning. I want you to be hearing me today. I want you to be hearing God's word today. I don't want you to be hearing a story today. I don't want you to go from here and say, wow, that was cool. Now, the Bible is cool, but God didn't write the Bible so that you could go away and think, that, that, book, that book's cool. It's designed to change your life. So we need to not get lost in the drama of Paul's story. It's important that we don't have our imaginations captured by the miracles that were taking place through him at the expense of the message that was being given through him. Let me say that again. It's important we don't get just sucked into and we don't uh, give up the, the, the message just for the drama and for the miracles. It's important because the miracles were there to validate the truth of his message and to display the source of his message. God didn't perform miracles through Paul just for the sake of it, just so that we would have something 2,000 years later to talk about on a Sunday morning. He did it to validate the fact, to, 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 to make sure that everybody around them, and it's the same with the apostles, the disciples, all of the miracles that took place, they were there so that people took a step back and said, hang on a second, this must be God. That, in a nutshell, is what it's about. And the book of Hebrews speaks to this, and it's important. I'm going to lay this foundation for us right at the start of this teaching. Because the message that Paul has got for us in chapter 5 of Galatians needs to impact every person in this room in some way. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, Therefore we must pay closer, much, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We've got to pay attention to, to the Word. To the Word. We have to pay attention. And if we don't pay attention, we can just drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Jesus came and died on the cross for us. He did that for a reason, and that's your salvation. But we can just so easily take that for granted. I'm not saying that we're all vicious and selfish and we're doing it deliberately. But, you know, you can take things in your life for granted if you're not reminded about the importance of them. My prayer each and every day is that I don't take my family for granted, my wife for granted, my kids for granted, my job, my boss for granted. I don't want to take things for granted, and too easily we can take the word for granted. It was declared at first by the Lord, and listen to this, it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. These miracles took place for a reason, and that was to rubber stamp the word that was being brought forward, to underline it, to put it in bold, to put it in italic, to do all of these things, to put it in flashing neon, to say, this is God speaking to you. You best listen. That's what those miracles were there for. So we read of them in the Gospels and the book of Acts, and they were given to us by God to bear witness to the fact that the message was truly from God, the message that was spoken, the message that was witnessed, the message that was written and codified in what we now know as the Bible. In the last letter that Paul wrote, 
he made clear to his protege, Timothy, he said this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is not just a book. It's truly God's instruction and guidance to us. It teaches us, it corrects us, it trains us in righteousness, that we can be complete and equipped for every good work. And let me just remind you and point out the first two words of that passage, all Scripture. All Scripture. Not some Scripture. Not only the bits of Scripture that you like. Not only the bits of Scripture that fall in line with your lifestyle choices. All Scripture. I didn't say this at the beginning, but get ready. I didn't say it at the beginning because I didn't want to scare you off while you still had a chance to leave. I am going to slap you upside the head this morning. And I'm going to do that in confidence and without apology. Because I would be doing this book injustice if I didn't do that. I'm warning you right up front. And I'm not playing today. Sometimes I'm playing when I say that. Today I'm not playing. So having looked at Paul's last letter, that's his last letter to validate the power and the authority of all of the Bible. Let's get back into Paul's first letter, which is his letter to the churches of Galatia. Pastor Philip's already done an amazing job so far, pulling out from the four books. And I tell you, having sat down and tried to do it in book five, it's not an easy task to do, because this is the, I could have written five, six messages from this one chapter. And I know Pastor Philip goes through the same uh, pains as well where he's doing, but he's pulled out some fantastic points from here. And he's also stated that Paul's letter to the Galatians, this is a unique letter compared to the other letters of Paul. The other letters of Paul were sent to specific people or specific cities. This letter was sent to a region, a region called Galatia. And this particular letter is likely to have been sent down to the southern part of Galatia, which is uh, now know, what we now know as Turkey. And as I said, Pastor Phillips covered lots of different points from these four messages, from those, those first four chapters. And there's so much information that we can draw from this letter. And it's worth thinking about this. We've been taking this letter to the Galatians chapter by chapter. Each week we've been breaking it down. But this letter, in its original form, didn't have chapters. It wasn't broken down into the 149 verses that we now have in Galatians. It was one letter, one very powerful letter. 2,230 words in the original Greek language of correction and instruction and some encouragement. Now, I'm not throwing those numbers in there and those statistics in there just to, 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 to help you, any other geeks in the room, although if you are a geek and you like, you're welcome. I am putting them in there for this reason. I need you to understand this. This is a real thing. This was a real letter written by a real person, breathed through by a real God. It's a real moment of history. It's not a story. You can do the research. You can go and look at it. I was looking at it yesterday. Again, because I'm a geek. But there's a, there, there are, we, we have extant documentation, which means it's still in existence from 200 A.D., the papyrus is still there of the letters which, which Paul actually wrote. It's a real thing, and I need you to understand that. Now, the Galatians' experience of this letter was this. Somebody received the letter from Paul, stood in front of the church, and read the letter from the start to the finish. Every word, all 2,230 words. Non-stop. Now, can you imagine all of the information that Pastor Philip has broken down? We've given you a, a, a week's break between chapters. The Galatians were sat there. It's like, can you imagine that? Every point that Pastor Philip has said, constantly. Bam, 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 bam. That was Paul's remit. That what Paul was doing. Again, he wasn't doing it to entertain. He wasn't doing it because he had to fill time at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. He was doing it because the Galatians had drifted away from what it was that they would start it off with. They started off so well. They started off so well. They were so focused and so joyful about the Word. They were so free in what it is that Jesus Christ had done for them. And then before you know it, they drifted away from it. Does that ring any bells? Is that your life? Because I know it's been mine at times. 
But Paul's letter is to bring them right back in track again. So, we're now in chapter 5. And I'm going to be taking one of the headings in this chapter from my Bible as the title and theme for this message. And it's this, keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. The purpose of Paul's letter, as we've seen so far, is to bring the churches in Galatia back on track to the gospel message of Christ. They've drifted and started to drift away from it. And keep in mind, as I said, that this letter was written at most two decades after Christ's death. Two decades after Christ's death. So the gospel of Christ and the life and death of Christ are still very much fresh in the memories of the people that are receiving this letter. I'm pretty certain anyone here over the age of 25 or 26 can remember things about the year 2000, yes? If you can remember, if you're old enough, you might remember the whole Y2K non-event. Had the whole world racked with fear coming into this century. I remember what it was like where I was working, just coming up to, to the century coming over. I mean, they had massive high-power meetings to try and figure out what was going to happen to the UK's financial industry when the computers crashed and never came back again, right? And there we were, one minute, one second after 12, like, okay, okay. All right. And then, and then all those financial high-powered people start crunching all of the... Uh, how much did those meetings cost? Right? How much, but that, was, that happened, it came, and it went. But you can all remember it. Why? Because it's only 20 years ago. This is where the Galatians were. It was only 20 years ago that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Imagine that. Imagine that. It was only 20 years, and yet, having lived through and accepted the gospel message, they immediately began to drift away from it. And they had their heads turned by the Judaizers who came to these churches preaching and teaching that the Old Testament law was still to be followed. So Paul sends this letter to turn their heads back again in no uncertain terms. Verse 1 of chapter 5 is the verse that we've been using as the theme of this series, and it really is the theme of this whole letter. It says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Up to this point in his letter, Paul has been calling the Galatians back to living in faith and in the freedom that comes as a result of the true gospel message of Christ. At the very beginning of his letter, if you remember, Pastor covered this. He's urging them to stop turning to what he calls a different gospel. He clarifies that, and he says, not that there is another one. Right? He's calling that a different... No, there isn't another gospel. There is one gospel. What you're hearing is not the gospel, and it's not a different gospel in as much as two, two gospels exist. There is one and one only. But there are some, he says, who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Be aware, there are some out there who want to trouble you, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. He's referring here to the Judaizers who are going back to the new church, and they're trying to have them return to living under the law, the law that includes circumcision, And that's a key principle to the people who did not believe in the gospel message. It wasn't all about the circumcision, but circumcision was a key part. And as pastors already said, that is not a good church-building policy to adopt. You don't go preaching about that and expect a flock of particularly men coming to your church. I imagine there was a whole bunch of ladies in the church, and the occasional man maybe, who just hadn't heard the news. But circumcision, as I said, is one of the key things, which is why it's always being referred to by Paul and being gone back to. In chapter 5, Paul returns to the topic of circumcision, and he says this in verse 2. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He goes on in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What is he saying? He's basically stood there and he's saying, look, listen, I don't care if you're circumcised or not. God doesn't care if you're circumcised or not. Now he used to care, but now he doesn't care. Now he doesn't care because Jesus came and he did what Jesus did. Jesus gave us freedom. He gave us freedom from the things in the law that we used to have to follow. Now we don't have to follow them. 
So if somebody's coming to you and telling you that you need to be circumcised, they are living under the old law. Because under the new law, under the freedom that Jesus Christ brought, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. Galatians 5, 7 through 8 says this. You were running well. Let's pause on that for a moment. You were running well. He's saying you, you, you were doing great. You were doing awesome. We'd come. We'd taught you. You'd accepted Jesus Christ. You were living in his freedom. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Paul's frustration is this. He's basically saying, what are you doing, people? What are you doing? What are you doing? The people that Paul is talking to are people that had heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. They converted to the gospel. And then they had someone come along and have them turn away. He's frustrated with them. He is frustrated with them. But he is downright angry with the ones who had come to them to pull them back under the law. How do we know Paul was angry? Well, you don't say this about men that you hold in high regard. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's what he says about it. Now, if you don't know what that means, it's hard to explain without going R-rated on you. But if you can imagine circumcision is a little bit, then emasculation is the whole kit and caboodle. You know what I'm saying? That's what Paul is saying. He said, I wish that they would emasculate themselves. He's angry. He's really angry. That there is someone out there that would come and turn the eyes of these believers away from the gospel. And I have to tell you this. I can relate to that frustration and anger. And without speaking for anybody else in ministry, I'm sure there's others that would say the same thing. There have been so many times in my relatively short time as a pastor that I've wanted to say, what are you doing? What are you doing? And there are several times people in this room can attest to it, where I've actually said to them, looked them square in the eyes and said, what are you doing? Because this world is continually attempting to turn believers away from the true gospel message. Continually. From the true instruction and the guidance of God's word. And sadly, there are too many people allowing themselves to be turned away. You started well. You were running well. But somebody turned you away. It's frustrating, it's disappointing, and more than anything, it's heartbreaking to watch. But all we can do is, every now and again, is to look somebody in the eye and say, what are you doing? In the hope of bringing people back to the true gospel, be aware of who you are listening to. Be careful who you listen to. Be very careful of who you are influenced by, because what the majority of people might call okay for you and your life is really not okay for you and your life. So Paul's expressed his frustration at those who have been given false teaching. And now he shifts into another gear. That's the beauty of Paul. As, as Christy was saying, there's a confidence about him. And I could preach a whole message just on that. But he, is, he, just, he just says what he needs to say. He's given them encouragement, but now he shifts into another gear. He moves into reaffirming the freedom that has been given to them by Jesus and starts to stress to them what that freedom does and doesn't mean for them, how they should and shouldn't be living that freedom out. Paul's letter to the Galatians is so powerful and impactful because he doesn't just talk about the fact that we should be living under the gospel and not the law and what the differences are between the two, but he clearly paints a picture of what that should look like in our lives. So I'm going to spend the rest of this morning's message unpacking the thoughts in the second half of this chapter. These guidelines, instructions from God. Not from Paul, from God. Because I believe that this is incredibly important for us to be hearing and absorbing. Particularly here, now, today. I genuinely believe that. So this passage of God-breathed scripture... It talks about our motivations. It talks about our decisions and what our lives will display according to the decisions that we make. So I'm going to give you three steps through these scriptures that if you commit to fully will potentially transform your life. That's not pastor speak. I'm telling you now, these three steps, if you apply these to your life, 
It will transform your life. Step one, choose. Choose. How you live your life is your choice. Now, there are factors that have shaped the way that you think and the choices that you've made so far. There are good things that have happened to you, and there are bad things that have happened to you. There are circumstances that you have lived through, struggled through, battled through. And you might be living in a place and a time of your life right now that is at least partly because of what has gone on so far. You may be in the thick of that right now, living through circumstances that are there because of choices and decisions that you have made or that other people around you have made. You may have limited choices regards where you live or what you do for a job or some other circumstantial things. I'm not dismissing that, not for a second. But how you live is your choice. Where you live right now might not be. Where you work right now might not be. But how you live is your choice. Paul puts it this way to the Galatians. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. He goes on. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You have the choice of whether you will follow the desires of the Spirit or the desires of the flesh. They are opposed to each other. They are opposite to each other. They will battle against each other. But understand this. They cannot be followed at the same time. You cannot follow both at the same time. At any given point in time, you are living by the desires of the Spirit or by the desires of the flesh. Never both. So there are many choices and decisions that you have the opportunity to make on a day-to-day basis. There are so many things available to you to turn your eyes and mind and flesh. And you can be overwhelmed with the decision process because you can be revisiting the same choices over and over again. Should I do this? Should I do this today? Should I did this yesterday? I know I should I done it. Shall I do it tomorrow? Shall I do it today? Let me try and make your decision process simpler. Here's what you don't get to decide. What is sin and what isn't sin? You don't get to choose that. You do not get to choose what is sin and what is not sin. The Bible is totally clear on what pleases God and what doesn't please God. What constitutes sin and what does not constitute sin. Irrespective of how you feel about that. Irrespective about how you feel about those things, or irrespective of, how, of whether, in your opinion, God actually sees those things as sin. Okay, let me help. Yes, he actually sees those things as sin. Because it's in his word. This is not me talking. And I'm not judging anybody for a second. Because, as I've said a thousand times before, everything you've done, I've probably done more than once. So your sin... You don't get to choose whether it's sin or not, but you get to choose whether you do it. You get to choose whether, once you've established and understood the fact that it's sin, you then get to choose whether to go ahead and do it or not. If you want to engage in sin, that's your prerogative. It's your choice. You have the free will to choose whether you sin or otherwise. But don't think for a second that because you think it's okay to sin for whatever reason you want to justify your sin away with, it makes it any less of a sin. Because it does not make it any less of a sin. I have spoken with so many people who are in sin who say, well, God knows my heart, as though it makes their sin okay. Listen to me. Yes. God absolutely knows your heart. And your heart is to know what sin is and go do it anyway. God knows your heart. God knows your heart. So in making the decision to sin or don't sin, let me tell you this. Let me fully accept and put out there, right up front, I understand that making the decision to do the right thing and not the wrong thing is not always easy. 
sometimes it's really, really, really hard. And I know that from experience. Really, really hard. Look what Peter wrote about it. He says this, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. In other words, you've left that life. You're away from that life. You've exiled yourself from the life that you were living before. But I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, I want you to listen to this and note this. Clearly, Peter is talking to Christians. He's talking to people who have already been saved and received mercy. He says, you have received mercy. You were once without mercy, but now you have it. You were once not saved, but now you are saved. But he still says, he still acknowledges the fact that it's a choice to be made to abstain from the desires of the flesh or otherwise. So what is it I'm saying to you? I'm saying to you that as a Christian, you shouldn't be doing certain things. But as a Christian, it doesn't automatically mean that you won't have the desires to do them. It means that you will still be tempted. You will still have the temptations. It will still be a struggle for you to make the right choice. But it doesn't make it any less important that you make the right choice. But I'm saying to him, I'm not excusing it. And I don't want you to excuse it. But Peter is acknowledging here, and I think this is important. Because so often as Christians, we can think, well, if I'm being tempted, am I really saved? If the temptation is there, if I want to still go and do that thing, does it mean that I'm not... It doesn't mean that. What it means is now you have a responsibility. It means now that you have reason to not sin. I know for 40 years in my life, before I was saved, I was that people. I was just sinning because it was just... Because, you know, well, why are you doing that, Pete? Well, because I can. Because it's fun, because I enjoy it. Because I liked it last time. So I want to do it again. Whereas now, when that temptation ever arises... Now it's a different thought process. But I want to acknowledge and tell you that the Bible acknowledges this. And it's not just Peter that speaks to that. Paul speaks to it. James speaks to it. There are so many people that speak to the fact that, yes, you're a Christian. No, you shouldn't be doing it. But you are still going to be tempted to do it. So let's just put that out there right up front. Let's just acknowledge the fact that you are going to struggle. You are going to have temptation. But it's what you do in that moment. It's the choice that you make in that moment which is going to determine the fruits in your life, which I'm coming to. Here's my advice to you as your motivation when making decisions in your life as to what to do and what not to do. Instead of choosing each and every day, shall I do this or shall I do that? Shall I do this or shall I, well, here's that opportunity again. Shall I do it or shall I not? Take a step back. And here's the choice that I advise you to make. I encourage you to make. Instead of thinking, shall I do this, shall I do that, and shall I do this, or should I do this, and should I do this, and should I do this, ask yourself this. Make this choice. Choose to be obedient. Because once you've made the choice to be obedient, it means that everything that falls under the realms of disobedient, you're going to think twice about doing. You understand what it is I'm saying? You aren't going to do it and then justify it away. You're going to be thinking, if I'm obedient, is this? You're not thinking now, should I or shouldn't I? Should I? You're now thinking, now it's quite simple and straightforward. Okay, if I do this, am I being obedient or am I being disobedient? So you're choosing to be obedient. Don't think about what it means to be obedient. When you're thinking about that decision, should I choose to be obedient to him? Don't think about all of the things that you might have to give up. Don't think about the sacrifices that you're going to make. Don't think about the, the sin that you're going to have to stop being involved with. Quite simply, ask yourself this question. Do I want to be obedient to God or not? If the answer is yes, make that choice. Make that choice. Make that choice. Is it going to mean that every, every time moving forward it's going to be easy for you? No, it doesn't change a thing about that. But it puts you in a position where your decision is obedience. It's obedience. Let me sum it up to you like this. Your desire to please God needs to be stronger than your desire to please yourself. You are going to have a desire to please yourself. You are wired that way. You're created. That's how it is since Adam and Eve had their party in the garden. That's now what you are cursed. The Bible says we are cursed from that way. We are now born with a sin nature. 
You have that sin nature, the temptation, the natural in the flesh. You are going to have those desires. But now, if I'm faced with a situation where I have a choice, where I could do something which is pleasing to my flesh, that desire is still there. That temptation is still there. The things I used to do that felt good, I'm pretty sure if I did them now, they would still feel good. Right? Don't be judging me and looking at me like that. Do you understand what it is I'm saying? That thing hasn't changed, but what now has changed is my desire. Now I can say where it was, oh, you know, I like how that makes me feel, so I'm going to do it. Now it's, I like how that makes me feel. I know that that pleases me, but I know that not doing it is going to please God. And so my choice is quite simply now this. It's not should I do that or not. My choice now is am I going to be obedient or otherwise? Am I going to be obedient? If the answer is that, to, to that is yes. You know what happens? This loses its appeal. It loses its appeal. Maybe once or twice I will go to there and think, well, sh- mm. but when you get in the habit of being obedient, you are constantly obedient. Now things that are disobedient are, frankly, off the radar. The temptation becomes less. So you don't need to be making regular difficult choices if you make one that covers every choice moving forward. Choose to be obedient. Once you've made that choice, what's the next step? Check. Step two, check. You need to give your life an honest and in-depth spiritual health check. That's what you need to be doing because nobody can do that for you. Because why? Because you are not going to tell anybody everything about you. I don't care who you are. I've had some very open and transparent conversations with people who have told me everything. And then the next time they come and see me, they speak as though I've already heard it. And I'm like, whoa, what, what was that? Oh, I told you. No, you didn't tell me. Oh, okay. Well, and then the next time they come and see me, something else comes out and something else comes out. You will never tell anybody else everything about you. You and God are the only two people that know everything about you. God is trying so hard to give you a spiritual health check. Constantly. He's, he's like, hello. Hello. I told you that yesterday. Hello. Hello. He's permanently trying to give you that health check, but you're not listening to him. So the only person that can give you a true, honest opinion of your spiritual health is you. Do it. Give yourself, Do it. Write it down. Don't write it down. Think about it. Don't think about it. But do it. Act on it or don't act on it. I don't just do it. Give yourself a spiritual health check. Check yourself against God's standards. God's standards. Not your standards and not the world's standards. Because you might check yourself against the world's standards and give yourself a glowing A. A gold star and a V dot good. When the reality is, according to God's standards, you might well be in the realms of an E or an F. That's the reality. Check by God's standards, not yours and not the world's. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The first thing you need to check is this. How do I react to sin? Ask yourself that question. Think for a second, how do you react to sin? Not sinners, sin. Does sin offend you? Does sin sin upset you? Or does it have zero effect on you when you see it? If your close friends or your family are are living a life of sin, does it make you uncomfortable? Or do you just live with it just because it's them? Do you allow it and tolerate it because it's it's them, because they're my family? Again, it doesn't change the fact that it's sin. I'm not saying you should necessarily do anything about it if it's somebody else. But what I am saying to you is, if you're witnessing sin, it should affect you. It should make you feel uncomfortable. It should, you should sense that there's something wrong about it. Second thing to check is how much of your life right now is led by the Spirit and how much is led by the flesh. Imagine that you have come to yourself, and you have said, take a really close look at my life and let me know everything I'm doing that is not pleasing to God. And then you answer that question. Imagine that you have come to yourself 
Because if I come to you and say, take a close look at your life and tell me everything that's not pleasing to God, you're not going to tell me everything. But if you come into you, you can do it. You can check it. Go through your life. Do it. I encourage you. Take a really close look at your life and let yourself realize the things that you are doing that you shouldn't be doing. If you've made the choice that you're going to be obedient to God. Because if you haven't made that choice, then you can go about doing whatever it is you want to do. If you've made the choice to be obedient to God, there are going to be things that you know that you shouldn't be doing. How do you know if something you are doing is flesh-led or spirit-led? Every choice and decision that you make leads to actions, and those actions lead to results. Everything you do bears fruit. The fruit that's on display is going to indicate to you and those around you what it is that is leading you. It can't be put any clearer than in Matthew 7. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. You cannot escape the fact that you can't get apples from an orange tree. And you can't get oranges from an apple tree. The type of tree determines the fruit, period, period. Now, you might be able to keep things under wraps for a little while. Maybe all that the people see around you in your life right now is a tree. All they see right now is a tree. But at some point, that tree is going to bear fruit. And you might have been saying to everybody for the last few months, well, that tree is an orange tree. But when the apples start falling, everybody knows different. You can't get oranges from an apple tree or apple tree from an orange tree. Everybody's going to see differently and everybody's going to know differently. But that's not what's important. God has known all along that the tree you're saying is one thing has always been another. He's known all along. He's not waiting to see what the fruit is because he knows the tree that you've got planted Carrying on with Galatians, verse 19. I told you I was going to slap you upside the head, right? 1921. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. The fruit on the tree is evident. This is the fruits of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's awesome how that inspires us. It lifts us. And it should do. But we can't forget the first scriptures about the fruits of the flesh. Because there are some in here who are living and bearing that fruit. And I'm not judging you. Like I said, I've been there. There's not many things on that list that I wasn't involved with at some point in time. I'm not telling you which ones they were. But you have to understand that good Fruit can only come from a good tree. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So let me ask you a question. I don't want you to answer out loud, please. What is it that's showing in your life? What is it that's showing in your life? Check your fruit. Check your fruit. Have you got a basket of oranges or have you got a basket of apples? It's going to show you the areas of your life where you are following the wrong lead. You cannot follow the spirit and the flesh at the same time. So the fruit you are bearing is going to show you who it is that you're leading. So you've chosen to be obedient. You've checked to see where you are not being obedient. What is step three? Change. Change. Change what? Whatever you need to. You change whatever you need to. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Everything we do in our lives should be in step with the Spirit. 
If you've decided to be fully obedient, then that's what it means. It means fully obedient. Everything in your life needs to be in step with the Spirit and not in the flesh. Now, that doesn't mean that you're striving for perfection, that God expects you to attain perfection, because He doesn't. It means that, you are, that your overarching desire is now to please God instead of yourself. That's your overarching, that's your motivation now. I'm not going to please myself any longer. I'm going to do what it is that pleases God. Will you stumble and fail and fall sometimes? Yes, you absolutely will. And don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. You are going to because that's the flesh that you are in. And remember, there's a battle going on between the spirit and the flesh. But when you do fall and stumble and fail. If you have made the choice to be obedient to God, then you are going to realize that you have failed and you have stumbled and you have fallen. You're not going to be carrying on doing it regardless. You are going to realize and then you're going to attempt to get back in step with the Spirit. Make the changes in your life that you need to. Whatever those changes are and however hard you might think it's going to be, and it might be hard. You might need to change some things that you do. That is your choice to make. You might need to change some places that you go to. That's your choices to make. You might need to change some people in your life, or at least the amount of control and influence that they have over you. And that is your choice to make. In First Peter it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't go back. Remember what Paul said, you were running well. You were running well. Don't go back. Don't go back. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So I'm not saying for a second that this process is easy. And the great news is, you don't need to be doing it on your own. You can draw on the power within you for strength and for guidance. The Holy Spirit is there to help you. Now when Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit, He calls him the helper. The Greek word is paraclete. It means helper or advocate. Listen, paraclete, it means helper. It doesn't mean doer. He's not going to do it for you. Our relationship with God, it's what's called a synergistic relationship. Synergistic means this. It means it's the interaction or cooperation of two or more agents to produce a combined effect greater than the sum of their separate effects. So you take this and this and you add them together and the results are far greater than these two things separately. Now listen, God does not need my help at all. But boy do I need his. Boy do I need his. And the great thing is, is we have that. We have that Holy Spirit within us. There are going to be some tough tests for you in the process of this. Really tough tests. And some of you are going to have more things to change than others. Some not so many, but they may still be really, really tough. You might have that one thing that you cannot seem to shake. That one thing you've tried so many times before to stop and you've failed every time. But let me tell you this, that's no reason to stop trying. All it means is that you need to try some more. Don't fall into the trap of saying, oh, that's, that's just me. That's just how I'm wired. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just made that way. I'm, I'm just wired that way. Yes, it is how you're wired. Me too. Me too. We're all wired that way. Our flesh, flesh is all wired against the Spirit. All of us are subject to the temptation of sin. Now, not all the same sins. What you are wired to do might be different to what I'm wired to do. But we're both wired. I mean, not wired. I mean, wired. We're both wired towards that, towards sin. You've got something. Welcome to the club. I've got something too. But here's the deal. My something, I have to make a choice whether I'm going to do that something or not. And guess what? Your something, you've got a choice whether you do that something or not. And I'm not dismissing your something. Your something might have you in super tight bondage right now. You might have it wrapped around your neck and strangling you so tight that you can hardly breathe. But listen to me and listen to me. Until it's over, it's not over. Until it's over, it's not over. You have to make a choice. 
that you don't want that thing in your life anymore. And you call on the Holy Spirit and you pray to the Holy Spirit and you get the right people around you. And you stop having the wrong people around you. And you get in the right places and you get out of the wrong places. And you start to make the choice. You start to make the choice. You choose, you check, you change. You choose, you check, and you change. Now listen, this is what I've learned about the choices that I make or that I've made in the past. The minute I stop fooling myself about them is the minute that I stop trying to fool everybody else. Stop fooling yourself and others. The important thing is this. You can fool yourself, you can fool other people, but you cannot fool God. God is never fooled. First Thessalonians, Paul, imagine that wrote this, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So, choose to be obedient to him. Check in your life what it is that needs to be changed, and then change it. Yes, it's going to be tough. Yes, it's going to be hard work. Now, I personally don't believe there should need to be any more motivation to please God than simply because it's pleasing to him. But in case you do need something else to help you to be motivated to walk in step with the Spirit, let me show you what comes through our obedience to him. James 1.25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, that's the gospel message, not the old law, the perfect law, is the gospel message that Paul is trying to bring these Galatian people back to. The perfect law. The law of liberty. Freedom. That law of liberty. And perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. He will be blessed in his doing. You hear it, but don't just hear it. Do it. Do it, and you will be blessed in his doing. But note this, the word perseveres. Perseveres. What does that mean? That word would not be there unless it took effort to be a doer, to walk in step with the Spirit, to choose, check, and change. The effort is worth it. If you're saved and in relationship with Christ, you're blessed already. But there is no place that sets you up for all that God has for you more than walking in obedience to him. Stand on your feet if you would.